perception is reality. And what I mean by that is it's irrelevant how good of a listener they think they are, but we have to look at their direct reports and their colleagues and how the leader is perceived by them because that's how they're showing up as a listener. I am your host, Raquel Ark, an American podcasting from Germany, and this is Listen In. Join this series of conversations with inspiring scientists, leaders, and authors about listening as a surprising superpower that is not always as easy as it seems. Believe me, I know, and I've been learning and will continue to learn, and I hope that this podcast will help you find practical ways to help others listen better while you become better at leading people catalyzing collaboration, transforming conflict, building trust and engagement. And I'll tell you, when really good listening happens, then the entire group, including you, can feel energized and inspired. So sit back and enjoy listening beyond what we typically think of. What if listening training would make the difference in growing a listening culture in organizations? And what if we could connect this to the bottom line? In this episode, Laura Janusik shares her experience helping individuals and teams better align their communication through the power of listening. She is considered a worldwide expert in teaching and training listening based on over 20 years of being a scholar, researcher, teacher, and a trainer. She is currently spending her time helping leaders in private industry as well as training ICF certified coaches to be better listeners. We talk about a lot of different things in this episode, and one of the areas is the research that she is doing on metacognitive strategies, which is learning how to listen to our behaviors while we are listening. So enjoy this. And this episode is a little bit different because as we started recording, she jumped in and started asking me questions. So you'll notice this at the beginning of the episode. And I really appreciated Laura listening to me. Enjoy this episode of Listen In. How did I get into this listening gig? Mm -hmm. I actually studied communication, interpersonal and organizational communication at Ohio University. And so I actually had a listening class, but it was just listening to recordings and then seeing what we recalled back, Mm -hmm. you know, answering questions. And we did have active listening in the training and development program, if I remember correctly, in the interpersonal communication class, we had some stuff on attending and active listening and whatnot. So it was a part of the program I studied, but I don't think I really realized the power of it until later. And where I dove probably deeper, I, I I did my coaching, my professional coaching degree, and I think that gave me another understanding of listening, where listening can help others. I hadn't thought of it from that perspective. And then once I left corporate world and I was doing a lot more training and facilitating, I used to um, you know, do my training and development where you get people to listen to each other. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I always saw the impact in groups or in one-on-ones, but I never talked about it. I just used it. And then when Trump was elected, and he was elected back in 2016 because of people not feeling heard 
that's when I thought, oh, I need to start talking about this and like shining the light on it so that when the magic happens, let them know that it was listening that allowed that to happen. And that's probably what got me started in terms of really putting more focus on the listening piece. And through that process is where I met a lot of people. Yeah, that is absolutely fascinating. Are you ICF certified? It's, it's It was an ICF program, mm-hmm. and so it was a professional ICF program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting because I actually have a 12-hour listening course for coaches that is accredited by ICF. And um, I've been speaking this last year to a lot of ICF chapter groups and introducing a different way to look at listening, because I know that it is very different than the training that one gets in certification. The coaches who I've worked with on listening after on training, Mm -hmm. they've come to my training programs. They're always like, I wish more coaches listened. (laughs) And I always laughed at that because I always saw coaching as a listening profession. I still do. But I was wondering, what what do you do for the program? Yeah, I've got 12 different chapters and each chapter is based on research and it targets a different area. So for example, before I hopped on this call with you, I'm working on chapter 10, which is, you'll love this one, Raquel. It's listening to clients from different cultures. And looking at the research of turn-taking behaviors and silence and what silence means in different cultures, because that is so important to know and to understand as a coach. Also, I have a chapter on nonverbal behaviors and the fact that there is absolutely no research around the world that correlates any what we call listening nonverbal behavior with listening cognition. And listening cognition is where we make meaning. That's in our brain. Listening is primarily a brain-based activity, but it's perceived behaviorally. And so a lot of people think they know if someone is listening to them by looking at them. So for example, in the United States, the three top indicators of listening in the United States appear to be eye contact, head nodding, and body orientation. However, those are simply in the United States, and there's no research that supports that any of those correlate with what's actually going on in the brain, which when you think about it, it makes perfect sense because we all know that we have fake listened in life. Usually it was in a high school or a college course where We sat in the front row and we established eye contact with the professor or teacher and we took copious notes, but we were really writing letters to friends. So we knew how to fake listen at a young age. So if people, if we've fake listened, that means that other people could be fake listening to us. And so for coaches, it's really important to not rely on this internal thought that I can tell if my client is listening to me or not by their nonverbals. We really have to look at how a client responds. And this is actually across the board. It's not just in coaching. It's just really across the board. Do you know of research in other cultures and how that's perceived? Yes. So for example, in Asian cultures, extended silence could mean disagreement. And they're not saying anything to save face. Can't remember if it's 
China or Japan, I think it's China though, extended silence for females is an expression of femininity, Hmm. which I thought was very, very interesting. In Scandinavian cultures, there definitely is extended silence. And if a face gaze is accompanied with a silence, then oftentimes, not only in the Scandinavian cultures, but mostly all cultures, it feels like it's your turn to speak. So people take it as, okay, I have to say something here now. And so, (laughs) yeah. yeah. When you said that, that reminded me, I I read somewhere in one of my intercultural books where, and I, but I really never have taken the time to notice with my friends, I'll have to check it out. But in England, when they're finished speaking, they look away, they either look away or look towards. I'm trying to think how that is when they're done. Mm -hmm. I think they look away. So it's like your turn to speak then. It's like Mm -hmm. almost the opposite of what you think. I'll have to look and see what that is. Yeah, that is really fascinating. And the other thing that I find just remarkable are turn-taking behaviors in different cultures with the amount of silence in between turns of the speakers. So for example, in the United States, people generally wait a half a second. So we really are a culture that listens to respond as opposed to listens to understand. But in Asian cultures, sometimes the silence between speakers can extend up to seven or eight seconds. And in other cultures, like Italian cultures and the New York Jewish cultures, overlaps, or what some people call interruptions, is what the norm is. And what's fascinating to me is that they all go back to respect. Cultures show respect of listening in very different ways. So listening is actually a cultural norm. So in Asian cultures, they wait seven to eight seconds because it shows the speaker that what the speaker said was so important that it's going to be weighed in the mind before it's responded to. And in the cultures that overlap, like the Italian culture, respect is shown by wanting to co-create the story together. And that's why the overlap is so common there, because you see somebody who is as excited about the conversation as you are. This is wonderful. I think this is really interesting. And (laughs) I wonder what happens when we're a mix of everything. (laughs) And that's what gets to be really confusing with intercultural communication, because we use our own norms to judge whether the other person is speaking or not. And we then make so many incorrect assumptions of what's going on. As a matter of fact, there are two cultures where nodding your head up and down means no, and nodding your head side to side mean yes. So imagine going to that culture and not understanding that those two, you know, for the rest of the world, those two signs for yes and no are totally reversed. Yeah, I've had that experience with my Indian um, students, you know, who've come here to Germany, mm-hmm. you know, have come up and asked me a question and I'm telling them something in my first instinct, we're like, why are they saying no? Oh no, they're saying yes. And so that was a big learning for me, you know, yeah. definitely a big learning. You know, so today I did a communication training with a group of 12 people and probably 10 to 11 different cultures. Wow. Living in Germany. So all working in their second language, English, as English. 
And I was thinking about this and I was thinking about you. So in this particular workshop in a more multicultural environment, I have them practice, you know, pausing and taking that moment of silence to think, but more in the sense of taking time to really reflect on a meaningful answer or to take time to reflect on whether there's anything left that wants to be said or to give someone a chance to do that. So more from that perspective, so a human, this human perspective. And, but I think it's still interesting to notice the different responses towards that silence. So some people were so grateful to know that they could take that time and they didn't realize they could in this environment. Mm -hmm. And they were happy to hear that, that it was possible to say, Hey, just a moment, I need to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) And there were others who recognized that when they had that silence, they felt like they rambled more than when they were the speakers, like when someone was waiting and they felt like they were rambling and they weren't so focused. So that silence made them more insecure. I'm sure that part of those, you know, different experiences have to do with how they grew up in their cultures. And then here you're in a multicultural environment where you have to communicate to the human (laughs) somehow, (laughs) you know, I don't know. I think it's really interesting. (laughs) I, I think it's absolutely fascinating and it really helps us understand how we can create communication patterns ourselves we can create the norms in our relationships. So for example, you had talked about previously doing coaching and you know, in coaching, you have more extended silences there than you often do in regular conversations with people. But if you brought that extended silence into a regular conversation with a regular person, somebody in your household or somebody in your office, then that can become the norm as well. And particularly, as you suggested, when you say, "Mm, let me think about that, because then the other person knows that you are actually considering what was said and what comes out of your mouth is more likely to be thought out as opposed to just the rambling if you start responding right away. When you're teaching the listening class to coaches, what are you noticing that surprises them the most? (laughs) It's so funny that you say the most because I find that everything surprises them the most. (laughs) One of the things that I guarantee them is that in the next hour, next hour and a half, they will go away thinking about listening differently and having a, a perspective shift about listening, which I think is so important because that's what they're trying to get across to their clients too, right? Is having a different perspective on things. So the way that we, you know, have been trained to think that listening is, isn't necessarily that way. So for example, last night I was just speaking with an ICF chapter in California and I was covering the four dominant listening habits, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that research with the echo listening profile. It was published by Bodie and Winters and Dupuis and somebody else in 2020 of March. I know this one, but I'd love for you to describe it for our listeners. Yeah. Great. What they were able to identify and support, two really important elements. First, that listening is a habit. And a habit is something that we do unconsciously and routinely the same way. 
So until we get educated in how to listen and we recognize that we can listen in different ways, we don't. (laughs) We just frankly don't. So they did support the idea that listening is a habit, and the habit can vary by context. So for example, some people who are at work listen one way, and then when they go home, they listen to their partners or their children or their family or their friends in different ways. So sometimes people have adapted to that, but other times people just listen the exact same way all times. And that causes a lot of challenges in relationships. The second thing that the study found was there are four dominant listening habits. And the way that I like to explain this is Think about your brain like a pasta strainer, and we don't take in all of the words that are coming in at us. We select the words that we're listening to and we're listening for. So we already have a set mindset of the type of information that we want to go into our pasta strainer. And the other stuff that we have deemed as not as important, it goes through the strainer, so we don't have it to make meaning with. So the four dominant listening habits are connective. Those are individuals who listen primarily for the people and the emotions of a situation. And even in the absence of the message having people in it, they will conjure up the stakeholders of that information and identify how a stakeholder might feel about the information. And then the second is the reflective habit. And in the reflective habit, the person is kind of like a a mini computer processor, and they're taking the incoming information and trying to match it to their past experiences. So they're not doing this in a selfish way, but it's in a way to add value by being able to say, we've tried this before, and this part didn't work, or we've always done it this way, and it's always worked that way. And then the third type is the analytical listener. And the analytical listener, I always smile when I talk about because I'm highly an analytical listener. And I'm like a dog with a bone sometimes because I'm listening for the specific details, particularly if they include numbers. So looking for things like statistics and facts and information and the credibility that supports all of that. And if I don't get something nailed down, it's like a 50 puzzle piece puzzle. If I don't get something nailed down right away, then it's difficult to listen more without thinking about it because I don't feel like we can go on because I don't have the facts in front of me. So Mm -hmm. analytical listeners listen for the facts and the information and the credibility that supports them. And then finally, the conceptual listener listens primarily for the big idea or the big picture, very different from the analytical who wants the facts. Conceptuals want the big picture, and then they are off and applying it to the future. So they're the brainstormers who are saying things like, who could we partner with on this? How about if we took out this part of it and we just did that part? Who could we leverage? How can we leverage this? So They are thinking of the possibilities of the future. And what I find so remarkable about this whole model in the echo listening profile is the fact that it can measure the way that one listens typically in a context. So uh, it was made for the business context. So 
when you're in business, how are you listening? And what is wonderful about it is that when you see how you're listening, you recognize what your blind spots are and you recognize what you haven't been listening for and what you've been allowing to just strain through your strainer. And you begin to understand why other people on your team have very different interpretations than you do because they are preferencing a different listening habit. So the, when you took the survey for yourself and mm-hmm. you discovered that you have the you do more analytical type of listening, what blind spot was opened up for you to be aware of? Connective, <laughs> believe it or not, <laughs> connective. Okay. Yeah, I am just one of those people who wants to get to the facts, right? Just mm-hmm. get to the facts and I'm on a time limit, so let's just get this puppy done. But I have recognized that I have to think a lot more about the people and the emotions of things. Yeah, nice. I know a lot of people are in the listening world, but I don't know if I know that many people who know so much like like you do. And I would imagine, I'm curious what we learned today on the podcast, and I would imagine that you'll probably do a few more sessions after today. (laughs) But I would love to go back to even before you start teaching listening to coaches at the ICF and before Mm -hmm. you discovered the echo. And I'd like to hear about when you first became aware of the power of listening, whether it worked or it didn't. Yeah, I have, I think, nailed the point when I figured out listening was important and my first aha with it. I like to say I was a millennial before millennials were born, which just means that I've had multiple careers in my life. And I was in my early 30s having my one-third life crisis, I like to call it, since I'll live to be 100. And I decided to go to graduate school to get my master's degree. And I had a bachelor's in secondary education, communication arts. So I had a little background in communication. So I thought, well, I'll just get a master's in communication. I went to the University of Maryland at College Park and you're assigned an advisor when you first come in. And my advisor was Andrew Wolven because we both had an interest in pedagogy or teaching and training. And Andy quickly let me know that he was a listening person. And I quickly let him know I had absolutely no intention of becoming a listening person. I didn't know what a listening person was, but it didn't sound like anything I wanted to be. So Andy was great. He's a worldwide expert in listening and just a very prolific scholar and has laid so much groundwork for listening research. I respect him greatly. So I went along my merry way with him as my advisor for three semesters. And then going into my fourth semester, I recognized that Andy would be writing my letters of recommendation. So it would behoove me to show a little bit of interest in his passion. I signed up for his listening course. And within two weeks, it changed my life. I remember we were reading a paper that he had published earlier on different listening models. And it wasn't until reading that paper that I realized that listening could be modeled and people modeled it differently and had distinct arguments about whether listening required a response or not. 
And some people thought the response just needed to be internal, and other people thought the response needed to be external. I also recognized in that moment that the quality of listening determines the quality of relationships. And one of the reasons that I had had such poor relationships previously was I was not a great listener to people. I really thought that I was right, or I was smarter than other people, or the way that I saw things was factually the way things were. And so to recognize that in your early 30s that you have been an awful listener was eye-opening, to say the least. And when you recognize that, you have to do something to improve it or make it better. And so I decided at that moment that I was going to continue on for my PhD so I could focus on listening and I could help research listening and publish in listening and help people understand what listening really was. Because ultimately, the better relationships we have with people are developed through better listening. So this is really interesting, Laura. <laughs> Here you're, you have this analytical mind. You're getting your master's degree by chance. You happen to be with someone who is an expert in listening. And you to only take this class uh, to make him happy and get a good recommendation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and two weeks into this class, and I'm and I'd be curious about that. All of a sudden, something kind of hits you on the top of your head. You're like, "Whoa!" And you realize, and you said this very quickly. Well, you didn't say it very quickly, but you said mm-hmm. it. But I want to repeat this again because it's so important. You recognize that the quality of relationships is determined on the quality of listening. So this meant that. You wanted to improve relationships in your own life. So this is even outside academia. This isn't your the head stuff, the cognitive stuff, but this is like your relationships and recognize that listening was the way to do that. Or was it that you tried out the listening and you noticed your relationships change? I would say it was probably throughout that class a little bit of both. You recognize that you need to make changes, and so you start making these changes slowly with other people, and you see your relationships developing differently, and it solidifies that listening is really the way to go. Nice. (laughs) So that's when you got your doctorate, you know, Mm -hmm. and... Did you get it in listening? There is no doctorate in listening per se. My PhD is in communication with a cognate of listening. Okay, great. Yeah, I was, well, you never know. Maybe there was something you didn't know about. We could use one now. I think we will have one soon, probably, with all the research happening. That would be terrific. Yeah, and Raquel, I think you're absolutely right. I have been blown away by the research that has been conducted since 2000 when I've entered the field. It really is just phenomenal. I feel like there's a lot of, it's on hyperdrive right now. You know, there's a lot coming out right now. I do too. Really a lot. So it shows there's more interest and there's more work being done, more collaborations. So I'm really curious what we're going to learn because I think we're, we're just at right underneath the tip of the the iceberg, (laughs) figuring Mm -hmm. out, discovering the, the value of this. So 
So just tell me, so right now you do, tell me about what you do around listening, because I know you do a lot. Just tell me how you put this into practicing your day-to-day work. Yeah. I actually retired from academia two years ago. I was a professor at Rockhurst University. I'm still a professor emeritus there, and I do teach some listening courses for Rockhurst and elsewhere. But I decided that it was really important for me to take this message of listening out to the other world beyond academia. So the two primary areas that I work in are leadership development because I can work both individually with leaders or I love working with leadership teams Mm -hmm. to develop listening cultures. And of course, as you know, Raquel, whenever you're going to change a culture, you have to start at the top. So you have to get the buy-in of the people who are at the top. And it's not only the buy-in that they think listening is important, but they actually then have to practice it on a regular basis. And so that's always amazing to watch a culture shift when the leaders in that culture start to listen. So I love working with leadership teams and leadership groups. And then I also have been working with hundreds of coaches over the last couple of years as well. And one of the reasons that I got into working with coaches is because I didn't have to convince them that listening was important. They already recognized that listening was important, so they wanted to know how to listen more effectively with their clients, which is very different than some leadership who was much like I was before I took my first listening course. I know everything there is about listening because I was born with the ability to do it, just like breathing. (laughs) I don't need instruction in how to breathe. I don't need instruction in how to listen. But once you start understanding what listening is and the different ways that you can do it, it's remarkable, just mind-blowing in many ways. So what would you say are one of your more mind-blowing pieces? What what has blown your mind the most? Yeah, for me personally, and then also I see this a lot in clients and others, I was not raised with a household that listened or a household that taught me that other perspectives could be as true as my perspective. Thus, I really did think that there was one way to view things and it was my way to view things. And so it was mind-blowing for me to see that other people could see different things and feel different things and understand different things while we were all looking and experiencing something together. And I see that a lot in my clients too, particularly people who are highly analytical. Uh, For example, engineers. I remember just one engineering group where they just looked at me and they said, Laura, people can't listen differently. We all listen the same way. (laughs) And there were some support people in that room. And, you know, they were like, no, I I do listen differently than you do. And it was just really amazing for them to even perceive that something that they felt so strongly about and had been doing so well, they thought for years and years, could be done differently. Mm, Nice. I love those aha moments that open up the perspective on listening, because often I think we when we think of it, 
you know, automatically it's very small, you know, mm-hmm. just this one way. But once you start talking to people, well, how their understanding is or what their experiences are, you look at the research, all of a sudden it gets so big. Yeah. It's so big. <laughs> It is. It is. And I would love to say that even though I've been researching, listening for over 20 years, that I know everything there is to know about listening. There's no way. Talk about the tip of the iceberg, as you said. You know, daily I'm reading things and I'm like, oh, I never thought of that. Yeah. So for example, have you read Tamsin's Hartley's The Listening Space? Yeah. Yeah. It's so nice. Yeah. Yeah, I was just reading that and just totally blown away by this thought that you can simply sit there and listen to someone else. (laughs) Yes. And that could be a job. And that could be a job. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of magic actually in that space. So it's really Mm -hmm. cool. What questions are you asking in your research? I am still researching, even though I've been retired from academia for two years, because one of my passion projects is actually metacognitive listening strategies, which I know is a mouthful. But basically what that means is how do we think about listening so we can listen more effectively in the moment? I really want to help students understand that so they can listen better, not only in classes, but outside of classes as well. So what are the different strategies that we can use to make meaning? So metacognitive listening strategies are really thinking about how we listen while we listen and using different strategies to listen more effectively while we're listening. Mm -hmm. So we're thinking about doing it as we're doing it. And the most recent research that I have been working on is a qualitative piece. Terry Varner and I collected data from both her students in Texas and my students in Missouri. And actually, we looked at a number of other cultures as well, because we were interested in what strategies students said they used in the classroom. And what was fascinating is that it's slightly different than the literature suggests. So definitely there are metacognitive listening strategies, but there are additional strategies that students use to actually learn information. So we're starting, we've already had one article published to see how listening in a second language may differ from listening in a first language. And now we're going back to the drawing board in terms of how people make meaning in their first language. Just so you know, I am starting the first listening class at the university where I teach. And it's the first time we're teaching. It's a listening class for the, in the business school. And it will be probably students in their second language in English. Mm-hmm. And we will be doing metacognitive listening strategies. So we're going to be practicing listening and reflecting on them. That's what you're discovering, what you guys are discovering there can be really helpful because there's so, we don't have many listening classes and to, and I get the question often from people about listening. How do you teach listening or how in schools, whether it's college, whether it's high school, whether it's for younger kids. And so I would imagine this will really help. Yeah. And I have to say that I totally agree with you. It's interesting to see when people do teach listening because they, everybody 
currently comes from their own perspective of what listening is. And, you know, as we've discussed, there are so many different perspectives of listening and none is right and none is wrong. But in terms of the cognitions and the metacognitions, the models that we're going to be showing in this the second paper that we're working on, I think is really going to lay a great framework and foundation for people to teach listening from. So they'll have a model to use to teach listening from to help people understand how to listen better. Awesome. Great. With all this experience that you have also working with leaders, what do you think is really important for, for leaders or individuals and organizations to know about listening, about, you know, what you're discovering Mm -hmm. in your work? I think that for leaders, one of the most important things to recognize is that perception is reality. And what I mean by that is it's irrelevant how good of a listener they think they are, but we have to look at their direct reports and their colleagues and how the leader is perceived by them because that's how they're showing up as a listener. And as a matter of fact, when I work with a lot of leaders, one of the first assignments that I'll do, and you might actually like this one for your class as well, is before our first meeting together, I give them a number of questions to ask at least three people in their lives about what I do well as a listener and how I can improve as a listener. And it's always amazing when they show up on the first day because they now have some concrete evidence of how others are viewing them as a listener. And some of it is extremely surprising to them. For example, I had somebody say, you know, I never recognized how much I am on my phone when I'm listening to other people. And every single person I asked mentioned that that I could put down my phone. So that's something that I probably need to do in the future. So it's just those eye-opening experiences about how others perceive you as a listener. That's really critical. And that's what I would say is the thing that I like to help leaders understand right off the bat, how others perceive them is much more important than how they perceive themselves. Yeah, that's great. Do you have any other thoughts on how organizations can integrate or support more listening happening in an organization beyond probably what has been considered so far? Again, it really needs to come from the top down in so many ways. And I think the more research that is done that ties listening to the bottom line is going to be so important for organizations who are resistant to creating listening cultures. But once we find that listening, you know, poor listening isn't just about being confused, but it means that deadlines aren't being met. It means that rework is occurring because people didn't do work the right way the first time around. And so once we are better able to tie listening to the bottom line through the research, I think that we'll see a lot more organizations wanting to become listening-centric or listening-focused. As you were speaking, I was just thinking, there's a lot going, a lot of talk right now around diversity, equity, and inclusion, or around how companies 
can be more sustainable and relate that to profit, you know, ES with ESG initiatives and whatnot. And I would make the assumption that if we would help our teams, our leaders to listen better in the organization, that that would automatically, more organically start to impact those initiatives that people struggle with right now. Because then people will automatically feel more included, more perspective considered, there'd be more creativity, more newer ideas. And because people feel listened to, there's more engagement and therefore would impact a lot of these areas that currently struggle. That was just a thought. That's a thinking out loud moment, Laura, from what you just said. And I think you're absolutely correct. I think one of the challenges that we are having with the DE&I movement is the idea that there are different ways to perceive things. So it goes back to that Mm -hmm. mindset and that curiosity and that perception of things, because we know that the people, let's say the people who are in the minority, so the people of color and the women and all of those groups don't feel heard and understood in organizations because we frankly still have a lot of white males who are running the organizations and they've never had to think about things the way that females had to think about things. And I remember vividly in my class when I was teaching about three years ago, we were talking about the differences in males and females. And many of my male students were like, oh, everything's equal now. And there was a female who got really upset. And she said, have you ever had to think about walking alone at night and not having a backup plan for that, you know, or not walking alone at night? You probably have never had that experience where you have to think about all of these things that could happen to you. And, you know, he hadn't because when he wanted to go out at two o'clock to go grab a burger, he would just go out at two o'clock to grab a burger. So I think really it's opening eyes for the people who historically have held the power to see that there are different ways to view things. And once we start helping those people feel heard and understood the company's only going to get better because we will be able to serve more people. Yeah, definitely. So, well, let's see where this all goes, but it would be nice to know if doing more listening training would support these processes so that, you know, so that everyone's voice can be heard and, and, you know, that there's even those who are in leadership positions now, you know, a lot of the white guys that they feel heard too in this process, you know, that we can all kind of change together would be nice. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'd like you to share with our audience how you perceive the goal of communication versus the goal of listening, because you sent me a little something that shared what you thought about that. And I thought it was so fascinating. Yeah. And this is where my PhD in communication hat goes on. The (laughs) goal of communication is to create shared meaning. So that means that the picture in your mind is as close as possible to the picture in my mind. Whereas oftentimes the goal of listening is simply to create personal meaning. And we know inside if we understand something or not. 
So we don't always feel compelled to let people know that we understand, or even more importantly, how we understand how something was just said and what the actual meaning of that is. And that's why we've got so much miscommunication going on, not only in relationships, but in organizations as well, is we don't confirm what the meaning is before we leave that conversation. Mm. I was going to say it's so simple. It's not simple, but the, the concept is simple. It just, mm-hmm. we, to take time to do that is not that simple because it exactly. goes against our normal patterns. Yes, Exactly. And that all goes back to mindset too, Raquel, because we're just assuming that other people are making meaning the same way we are. So how could somebody else see it differently? Right. Are you trying to say that my teenage son and I don't make meaning (laughs) the same way? (laughs) I would definitely (laughs) say that that is true. Oh, gosh. Well, I think I have some work to do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but think about it, too, because the other aspect I was talking about the echo profile before and how, you know, we have filters in our brain that select what we're listening to and for. But then that stuff is going into our working memory. And what working memory is doing is drawing from our long term memory. And Mm. so your 15 year old son only has 15 years of memory. (laughs) And you have only 30 years of memory because you were a young mother, right? Um, (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, but you have so many more years of memory. And so the meaning that's created in that moment will be different because you can tie the incoming information to so much more um, direct experience than a 15 year old could. Yeah. Okay. So is there anything else that you would like me to ask you that I haven't asked? Oh, I always love that question. I tell my students that that's the magic question, right? (laughs) And I think just the idea that it's never too late to become a better listener, because listening is a practice. In many ways, it's much like meditation. You never become a meditator, (laughs) you know, and you're you're so good at it, you never have to do it again. Uh, The great thing about listening is we never become an expert at it, but we get the opportunity to practice it every day. And when we screw something up, we can just do it better tomorrow. And so Mm -hmm. it's never too late to become a better listener. I love that. It's never too late to become a better listener. And if you start today, the quality of your relationship will be dependent on this quality of listening. So you can always work with your relationships. It's never too late for that either. Absolutely. 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 Well, Laura, it's been such a nice conversation. And I know there's so much more we can learn from you. So, but it's a great start. And I really appreciate you being here. If our listeners want to get in contact with you, whether they're coaches who would like to take classes from you to get ICF accreditation or leaders who want to get some training, how would they contact you? You can go through my website, which is listeningtochange.com. The two there is T-O, so listeningtochange.com. You can link with me on LinkedIn and then just send me a message when you're linking, and I will be happy to respond either way. 
And Laura puts out lots of really helpful videos on listening. And we do you have a YouTube page for that? I do have a YouTube page for that, and it's Listening to Change by Laura Janusik. And what I love about it, it's my listening tip of the day. So currently I have 100 tips recorded. And (laughs) the majority of them are on my YouTube channel. But what's funny is I really have to get up to 365. So indeed, I can have a listening tip for the day. Uh, But I I am well on my way to getting there. And that is definitely a goal. I'm so impressed. (laughs) So we'll add that link also to the notes so that people can go to the notes and find your YouTube channel very easily. Perfect. Thank you, Laura. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for being on Listening In. Thank you, Raquel. My pleasure being here. You are wonderful in what you're doing to promote listening in the world. So thank you for doing what you are doing. I am your host, Raquel Ark, an American podcasting from Germany, and this is Listen In. Join this series of conversations with inspiring scientists, leaders, and authors about listening as a surprising superpower that is not always as easy as it seems. Believe me, I know, and I've been learning and will continue to learn, and I hope that this podcast will help you find practical ways to help others listen better while you become better at leading people catalyzing collaboration, transforming conflict, building trust and engagement. And I'll tell you, when really good listening happens, then the entire group, including you, can feel energized and inspired. So sit back and enjoy listening beyond what we typically think of.